Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Rounding the News. My name is Liam Sturgis, and I am your host for this weekly news roundup presented by Rounding the Earth. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can support the show if you want to by sending us a Rumble rant if you're watching on Rumble, a tip if you're watching on Rockfin, or of course, library tokens if you are watching on odyssey now i'm very excited because we are currently live streaming as well on locals rounding the earth is part of the beta test for locals new rtmp live streaming feature which is all technical speak for being able to send uh uh, uh a stream from Streamyard into locals and look at that we are getting live chat on locals monkey king 1981 why do i feel like that's david martin Hmm. Anyway, sorry, I'm being distracted. So anyway, we are streaming to Rumble, Rockfin, Odyssey, a few other places, including Locals, and that is a good opportunity to remind you all, please, if you're not yet a member of our Locals community, go to www.roundingtheearth.locals.com, where we do currently have a live chat going, where um, you can also get uh, a free month of premium support by using promo code UNFLATTEN. Uh, and then if you like, you can continue supporting us for five dollars a month or more where you can have access to the behind the scenes live streams that we do once a week uh that we uh don't yet uh broadcast to the public in the case of this week we had a wonderful preview stream that was exclusive to locals paid supporters chaos agents themis report author revealed where we were joined by the previously anonymous author of the themis report who goes now by Kristen elizabeth so I highly recommend going there. And of course, there will be the show notes for this episode after the show. You can also just become a member of the community for free if you want to hang around with us. That is also fantastic. Now, on a personal note, I discovered this week that my dad subscribed to my Substack. This means that this article slash episode is the first that will be pushed out to his inbox and possibly the first that he will read slash watch this is meaningful for me as my dad is not only very smart but has also been very supportive of me through my continuous rather unconventional career choices as such i want to thank him for choosing to check out what i'm working on with rounding the earth and i hope he finds today's episode both stimulating and informative all right without further ado let's get started. The Cochrane collaboration reaffirms masks don't work. Yes, three years into the era of COVID-19 and the topic of face masks continues to come up as a point of contention. It's understandable. If wearing a medical mask, an N95 or a P100 or even a bandana or scarf prevented a lethal virus from spreading from you to the person around you, or vice versa, if it protected you from getting something, it would stand to reason that most people would embrace the protective measure. So why are there ever-increasing numbers of anti-maskers simply refusing to comply with public health guidance? Well, they must be selfish, anti-science Trump supporters. Or maybe they are read up on the scientific literature. As has been pointed out since even before COVID-19, the evidence for face masks to stop the spread of viruses like influenza is shaky at best. 
Surgeons and dentists wear surgical masks to stop themselves from accidentally spitting into the patient's open mouth or open wound. This oft-cited use case is simply not the same situation or use case as you or I covering our nose and mouth with a thin, poorly made piece of paper or cloth to go to the grocery store. As such, the results of the latest Cochrane systematic review should come as a surprise to nobody. Published on January 30th, the review evaluated the use of medical slash surgical masks, N95 slash P2 respirators, and hand washing, including 11 new studies that had been conducted and published since the last time Cochrane underwent such a review. Investigative medical reporter Paul Thacker from the British Medical Journal summarized the findings. I quote, Cochrane found no evidence that masks prevent spread of COVID, and even the much ballyhooed N95 respirators were found to have no evidence backing their, excuse me, backing their use. Or in terms used in the report itself, I quote, wearing masks in the community probably makes little or no difference to the outcome of influenza-like illness or laboratory-confirmed influenza slash SARS-CoV-2 compared to not wearing masks. You can read Thacker's full report on the study at his substack, The Disinformation Chronicle. And of course, these will be available in the show notes after the show. But of course, don't just take my or Paul's word for it. Make sure you read the actual Cochrane review as well. The COVID-19 emergency is about to end in the United States. Hasn't, haven't we been through this before? After just shy of three years, President Joe Biden has signaled that the United States will be ending its states of emergency for COVID-19 as of May 11, 2023. Coming only three days after the World Health Organization described COVID-19 as still a public health emergency, the announcement from the White House puts into motion a series of changes to policies and emergency infrastructure at both the state and federal level. Now, there are actually two emergency declarations on the books. You have a public health emergency and a national emergency, both of which were declared in March 2020 by the administration of President Donald Trump, and consistently renewed until this day. Based on this rolling renewal setup, the declarations are currently set to expire on March 1st and April 11, respectively, with the Biden administration choosing to extend them both one final time to May 11 in order to provide time for an orderly transition. According to the release, the administration had previously committed to give at least 60 days notice prior to the termination of the public health emergency. While it seemed this day would never come, it does pose some interesting questions. For example, what happens to the emergency use authorizations or EUAs granted to the COVID-19 genetic vaccines? As of today, there are still no FDA-approved COVID-19 products, as far as injections go, in distribution, which suggests that the vaccine rollout should officially come to an end in May. However, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services seems to have other plans. In a fact sheet released yesterday, 
the HHS states that access to COVID-19 vaccinations and certain treatments, such as Paxlovid and Legevrio, which is the first time I'm ever hearing about this second drug there, I'm going to have to look into that more, will generally not be effective. Furthermore, the agency says that there will also be continued access to pathways for emergency use authorizations for COVID-19 products, tests, vaccines, and treatments through the Food and Drug Administration. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, and I don't quite understand how if the emergency, if both emergencies are over, and we're talking about federal emergency states and federal agencies responding to those emergencies, and if the emergency use authorization exists to bypass regulatory processes in general uh, because of an emergency, then how can they continue to issue EUAs? These are some of the questions I'm asking. But for more on this, uh, I highly recommend going and watching the uh, video on this topic by Ryan Christian at The Last American Vagabond, where he goes through the ways that the various agencies of the U.S. government are playing their own shell games around maintaining emergency powers in the absence of an emergency. Okay, next one. Uh, in my notes, I have this titled, WTF is happening with eggs? I really don't know how else to ask the question. Seriously. From the beginning of the COVID-19 era, there has been a continuous series of here-then-gone-again crises of supply and demand, each with a unique spin. You remember at the very beginning of this, when stores were cleaned out of toilet paper by mobs of people preparing to be stuck at home for two weeks? In my notes, two weeks is crossed out. How about that whole kerfuffle with masks being bought up by China, sent around the world, mostly to China, by Trudeau, no less, and otherwise made a huge fuss over by people like Anthony Fauci for nothing. See our first story for why I say for nothing. And at one point in 2021, there was even a period where the province of British Columbia attempted to ration gas with a 30 liter limit at the tank as a result of road closures caused by severe flooding that virtually cut off Vancouver or the greater Vancouver area from the rest of the country. And of course, who could forget the great children's Tylenol shortage of late 2022? Now, in each of these instances, there was an official story with a lot of truth. I'm not saying these weren't real crises or real things caused them, but they were plagued with all sorts of unanswered questions. There were definitely crises, but oftentimes they seemed to be caused by something other than what the emergency response communications teams within government directed our attention towards. What were we directed away from? I'd say incompetence of those responsible for avoiding this kind of thing. Throw in a couple of mass propaganda experiments, I'm sure, and you've probably got mostly a handle on the situation. So when I started to hear about the price of eggs skyrocketing across North America, my first reaction was to roll my eyes in disbelief. Unfolding over the course of several weeks, I began to hear more and more confirmation that eggs were indeed becoming more expensive, with jokes of golden geese becoming ubiquitous. CNN, oh sorry, not CNN, CNBC News reports that egg prices jumped 60% in 2022, according to the Consumer Price Index, an inflation measure. 
This suggests that the increase is primarily due to inflation in the same way that absolutely everything is becoming more expensive. That's what inflation is. But eggs stood out above and beyond this new normal pricing. So what was the source of the crisis? As CNBC notes, the industry narrative, as they put it, has largely focused on a historic outbreak of avian influenza. Narrative is right. Right under our noses, while us humans are busy fighting off not one, not two, but three public health emergencies of international concern, or the acronym FAKE, and that's COVID-19, monkeypox, and polio, our poor chickens are dealing with their own set of sniffles. Color me skeptical, especially because of this rather predictable tidbit from CBS News. The headline reads, U.S. to test shots against bird flu outbreak as Biden administration weighs poultry vaccinations. Okay, I read from the article now. Federal scientists are gearing up to test the first vaccines in poultry against bird flu in years, as Biden administration officials say they now have begun weighing an unprecedented shift in the U.S. strategy to counter the growing outbreak. The decision to proceed with vaccination is complex, and many factors must be considered before implementing a vaccination strategy, USDA spokesperson Mike Stepien, Stepien? Stepien said in a statement, adding that the inspection service is discussing the options and soliciting input from many different industry stakeholders that would be impacted. While the Biden administration has so far not greenlighted the use of vaccines for highly pathogenic avian influenza, several shots had been licensed for potential use in previous outbreaks. Poultry are already regularly vaccinated for other diseases like infectious bronchitis. While animal vaccines can take years to be licensed, Stepien said some parts of the process can be accelerated for emergencies. Sound familiar? You don't say. Now, Forbes does a good job of setting the reader up for this conclusion as well, under a more dire banner of a potential jump to humans. I read, the, ta uh, well, the bird flu outbreak is the deadliest one in almost 10 years, which has helped cause egg prices to steeply rise. And while infection in humans is rare, some experts are gravely concerned it could eventually make the leap and spread among humans. The government plans to mass produce vaccines once an outbreak occurs, which can take at least six months to create enough for the entire population. A majority of the approved vaccines are created by incubating doses in chicken eggs, but the disease's rate of fatality among poultry poses an issue for these vaccines. The makers of Audems, the only non-egg-based FDA-approved H5N1 vaccine, expect to have 150 million vaccines ready within six months of an announcement of a bird flu pandemic. However, as the New York Times pointed out, there are 7 billion people in the world. This means only 2% of the world's population will receive the Audem's vaccine within the first six months of a potential pandemic. Scientists and researchers are attempting to get mRNA-based influenza vaccines FDA-approved, similar to Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna COVID vaccines, because mRNA vaccines take less time to produce. Oh, 
And as my friend Futch says in the Rumble chat, hashtag expensive. All right. Um, well, the study cited as being representative of these scientists and researchers working hard to get an mRNA flu shot in every arm slash wing is titled Message in a Bottle, mRNA Vaccination for Influenza. Of course, it would help if Forbes was more proactive in disclosing that the authors Jessica Chartouni and Annis Lowen were funded by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and hold a patent on flu vaccines. I don't know, man. It seems sort of counterintuitive. We're coming out of this emergency and we're already talking about the next pandemic as we're still dealing with two other public health emergencies of international concern. It's just a lot. Okay. Now there's something else. I mentioned my friend Futch in the chat. Futch uh, said something very funny to me over text and I'm going to pull it up because I think it's uh, highly relevant to what I'm about to say. Rounding the earth drinking game. Drink whenever somebody references their own substack. Will everyone pull out your tequila? Do you remember back on <laughs> September 30, 2022, when I covered in my substack, but also on Rounding the News, the show, the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines between Russia and Germany? At the time, I was one of the many who followed the critical thinking advice of Robert Barnes and asked, Bono. Indeed, who did benefit from the temporary or permanent incapacitation of Nord Stream 1 and 2? Well, it what seemed obvious at the time has now become further substantiated by the investigative report published by veteran journalist and political writer Seymour Hirsch. The report, titled How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline, details the background, planning, and execution of a joint U.S.-Norway military exercise that saw the planting of C-4 explosives on the pipelines by deep-sea divers under the cover of an exercise titled Baltic Operations 2022 or Baltops 2022. It's a compelling tale, which fills in a lot of details previously not widely understood. Now, Interestingly, the primary source of new information seems to come from an unnamed source with direct knowledge of the operational planning. Not exactly something that readers can independently verify. Predictably, various alleged conspirators within the United States government rejected the report as completely and utterly false and complete fiction including the White House National Security Council and the Central Intelligence Agency, or the CIA. In their reporting via Channel News Asia, the Agence France Presse, or AFP, also noted the fact that the article was substantiated by citing a single unnamed source. They also reminded readers that the Western world blamed the attacks on Russia without providing any explanation as to how such an act of self-sabotage would do anything other than threaten Russia's leverage over Germany and Europe at large. In any case, I highly recommend reading the report. Earthquake in Turkey and Syria kills tens of thousands. A magnitude 7.5 earthquake on Monday has devastated Turkey and Syria, with casualty estimates as of today 
now exceeding 22,000. As Zero Hedge reports, Meanwhile, inside Syria, not only has Idlib been devastated, but buildings collapsed in Latakia and Aleppo as well, and the quakes were felt as far south as Damascus. But amid talk in the West of putting together an urgent humanitarian response, West-sanctioned Syria is apparently being bypassed and largely forgotten about. Washington has, at the same time, shown no interest in lifting sanctions on Syria for the sake of humanitarian aid getting in at a faster pace. Look, this would be a really good time for officials to take a good long look at current foreign policy and decide if they're happy with how this is going. People are suffering in nations allied with the West, but also their immediate neighbors under Western sanctions. These are people divided by nothing other than an imaginary line on a map. It goes without saying, and I will say it anyway, I cannot imagine the pain and suffering that exponentially more people than even that 22,000, that exponentially more people are feeling as friends, family, and neighbors are lost to this disaster. I am so, so sorry. I hold this pain in my heart today as I try myself to understand the sheer scale of loss of life from this event. I don't really know what else to say. Okay. Moving on to the headline story of today. Fault lines. Government-funded disinformation. Now. On January 26, 2023, a very interesting report was released by a group called the Council of Canadian Academies, or the CCA, titled Fault Lines. According to the report, the COVID-19 pandemic was wrought with misinformation and disinformation that led to thousands of deaths, hospitalizations, and positive cases of COVID-19. Specifically, the report blames science and health misinformation, which contributed to over 2 million Canadians refusing to get a vaccine. <gasps> now, while it's an interesting premise, readers are right to be skeptical of the CCCA's independence on the matter, given that the report was commissioned and paid for by the Government of Canada through Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada. So instead of acknowledging the incompetence and or malice that led to the early and preventable deaths of thousands, if not tens of thousands of Canadians, the government instead hired an academic think tank to come up with a thinly veiled distraction by pointing at everyone who disagreed with their actions, blaming those people for the failure of the public health response. That's an eye roll and a half. The authors behind the report include a number of troubling individuals whose conflicts of interest speak for themselves. Just one for now I'll point out is Timothy Caulfield, for example, who has been very busy throughout the COVID-19 era combating so-called misinformation and disinformation and blocking anybody on Twitter who dares to suggest he may be wrong. One of his main projects is called Science Up First, which was started with funding from the Government of Canada to promote acceptance of COVID-19 vaccine products. As described in the government's own words, the 
Canadian Association of Science Centers in partnership with COVID-19 Resources Canada and the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta, where Timothy Caulfield works, have created Science Up First, a project to address misinformation in Canada by giving Canadians the tools to spread science-based information about COVID-19 and vaccines. Drawing on a network of scientists, healthcare providers, and science communicators, this national initiative aims to debunk misinformation with credible COVID-19 facts, as well as reach vulnerable populations with culturally relevant and scientifically accurate COVID-19 information. Okay, then there's the peer review team for the report, which includes, oh, let's see, we got Ev Dubay up here in the top left, a member of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, or NACI, which, for those that don't know, is the board up here in Canada that is responsible for approving COVID-19 vaccines. They're the ones who give the stamp of approval that Health Canada takes and uses as their own approval. Uh, okay, then you have top right, Peter Hotez, an infamous vaccine developer and uh, functionally a media slash government mouthpiece. And finally, the uh, very interestingly named David Rothschild, an economist at Microsoft Research. I don't know if, uh, if, if Rothschild in this case refers to that Rothschild. I'm not sure. Now, I highly encourage everyone to read the whole report. It's 260 pages long, but even if you disagree with the premise on its face, you still need to understand what arguments are being made in order to counter them and attempt to educate the public on exactly how they're being manipulated. And by the way, also to make sure that people like me aren't just completely wrong. You shouldn't take my word for it. If I tell you this is this group with their conflicts and they're misleading you, don't take my word for it. That's my assessment. But you should always go and read and come up with your own stance on this. It's called being educated. It's called being well-read. It's called choosing to figure things out for yourself with the advice of people who know what they're talking about, for sure. At least that's how I try to approach it. But that is exactly, okay, what the Canadian COVID Care Alliance has done. Do you like my hat? On February 6th, 2023, the Science and Medical Advisory Committee of the CCCA issued an open letter to Alex Hemeltharb, chair of the team behind the, uh, the, the misinformation report. Okay, from the letter, I read. Dear Mr. or sorry, dear Dr. Hemotharb, we in the Scientific and Medical Advisory Committee, or SMAC, of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance have read with interest your aforementioned report. Here we raise many issues that we found with our review of this document. In particular, we take issue with the characterization, or lack thereof, of what constitutes as misinformation the disregard for legitimate concerns associated with the government handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, and erroneous modeling and conclusions presented in Chapter 4. Several of our other concerns have already been highlighted in a recent Financial Post article that also offers an accurate critique of the CCA report. Among the many problems highlighted by the CCCA are the lack of competencies among the report's authors the conflicts of interests held by the authors, 
the failure to define what exactly misinformation even is in the context of this report, and the rather obvious point that it's important to not prevent robust, open scientific debate. You can read the entire letter at www.canadiancovidcarealliance.org, where you can also explore the now public profiles of 24 members of the CCCA's Science and Medical Advisory Committee on the shiny new About Us page. <sighs> it was nice being able to try out my new hat. The CCCA merch store is going to launch soon, and this is my, this is my sample. All right. That is it for today, ladies and gentlemen. If you have enjoyed the show, as a reminder, please drop us a Rumble rant if you're watching on Rumble, or a tip if you're watching on Rockfin or Odyssey. And most importantly, before you leave, go sign up as a member of our Locals community at www.roundingtheearth.locals.com. Big shout out to everybody that is in the chat over there, Jen and Monkey King. And you can snag yourself a month a free premium support using the promo code UNFLATTEN. After which, you can keep going and gain access to behind-the-scenes discussions that we're keeping within our more intimate community. Ladies and gentlemen, I have been Liam Sturgis. You can find me at www.liamsturgis.com where I've got some excellent music to check out or on Twitter at the Liam Sturgis. Thank you all again for coming this week and we will see you for another wonderful discussion on Monday.